This week on Kettle of Fish, writer and comedian Dylan Brody stops by to talk about keeping that frown upside down. Welcome to our after show. We call Kettle of Fish the No Politics Laughter Show. It's time for Kettle of Fish. No debates, hate, or arguments allowed on Kettle of Fish. It's like a Willy Wonka psychedelic acid trip. So hooray for Kettle of Fish. Alrighty guys, welcome to Kettle of Fish, the fun new politics laughter show where we converse with actors, comedians, artists, scientists, musicians, magicians, and models about life, love, and the creative process. And of course, there'll always be a little bit of politics because that's what we do. I am your seafaring podcasting captain of the airwaves, Nick the Saucy One Cat Source, broadcasting to you live, as always, from Meth Mountain, Tennessee. And I also want to introduce... The fallout shelter to my Trump Kim Jong dick measuring contest. <laughs> the radiant but not radioactive D. Aw, that's really sweet. The public enemy number one. Yes, pretty much. Five O said freeze, and I got numb. <laughs> pretty much. I would always rather be radiant than radioactive, but I have a feeling that one of these days both will be the same thing. But that's okay. That's okay. Yeah, you might hit the double Powerball. And be both at some point. Yeah, that would be craziness. Uh, yeah, it's it's a better Sunday than some, I guess, of course. Um, lots and lots of things coming up. Um, well, let me get Fern in here first, and yes. then um, we'll kind of converse, and you can do your spiel, your producer yes, spiel, and spiel. keep us all in line. I have a spiel. All righty. And a girl <laughs> who has been through the ringer to hell and back. Seen hard times and still comes out swinging. Fern, the moist voice heart. Well, thank you for that. I did actually I have the t-shirt, too. You did, almost, but I do have the t-shirt. It's got a few little burn holes in it. It's a singed a bit, but I, do, I did bring the t-shirt back with me. You know, actually, speaking of, you know, singed things, the sun's actually out here in Virginia Beach, which is nice. It's been... Uh, really cloudy and rainy and gloomy and, you know, all sorts of stuff. But I'm reminded of the uh, end of the year episode we did where we brought our ridiculous stories. And mine, of course, was about the solar farm in North Carolina and how people were scared that the sun was being directed to North Carolina. And I just have to say I'm really happy that they have that there because I think maybe that's what brought out the sun today because, you know, nobody believes science. So why not? In a related story, there is a woman who called up the local planetarium, and this sounds like a bad joke, right? But it's true. (laughs) Called up the local planetarium, I believe this was in New Jersey, and asked if they could reschedule the solar eclipse because it was going to interfere with school that day. And they said how inconsiderate she said how inconsiderate it was that they were planning an eclipse when they know kids need to get to school and parents are going to be driving to work. Mm Mm-hmm. Dude, I saw that, and I think oh, that one of the comments under there was like, um, "Are you seriously asking to reschedule the sun? Like, are you? Are you?" And that, of course, reminds me of a bit from our guest today, which was just fantastic. Actually, one of the fa- my favorite things I heard the Copernicus, uh, the Copernicus thing on YouTube. It was just brilliant. But yeah, people don't believe in science. They would. Um, we live in an age of conspiracy and alt reality, and. Uh, that's what we have to deal with now, and that's it's that's scary, man. Well, Everything's on its head. How much of this country pivots to the alt reality world before we're the maniacs? Before we're the crazy ones? 
Mm. Well, that's enough to drive you crazy thinking about it. Seriously, that's enough to want to be medicated. Just thinking about, you know, yeah. I mean, when I put my feet on the floor, I take gravity for granted. You know, like I don't think, hmm, if I put my feet on the floor, am I going to be able to, you know, put one foot in front of the other and walk or am I going to float away? Like these are science truths and facts. And when you start taking fact and saying, you know, this isn't a fact, I mean, I'm not saying don't question things. But, you know, there are some scientific facts that you have to say, like you say, you know, you've always said, you know, you don't have to drive to all 50 states to know that they exist. So the fact that you can take everything that you know and turn it on its head because conspiracy and a political belief in a certain candidate or a certain ideology is really scary. Well, it's just like today I was reading these, um, I always, more so than the article, what I find most revealing is when I read the comment threads to the articles, and you're hearing these people um, from the right, these hardcore Trump supporters come on, who can just not deal with being labeled fascist and racist and Nazi. So they come up with this conspiracy theory, like this fucking George Soros, uh, 20 Shades of Grey conspiracy theory that... All those dudes you saw with, like, the Pier 1 candles in the air, the tiki torches, like, all those dudes who said they were racist and KKK members, those were actually deep state operative, like Obama-directed deep state operatives. But then at the same time, they're saying the counter-protesters just showed up there to quell the protest because they, the anti-fascists are fascists, and they're the ones who brought violence there. So apparently this is like a bad fucking Andy Griffith episode where two hands, like, like it's one of those episodes where one guy's an FBI guy playing a drug dealer or a middleman, and another guy is like the drug kingpin, but he's in the CIA, and they go to arrest each other because neither one knows that they're part of the same organization, just different fingers of it. Like, they're saying that both the protesters and the counter-protesters are all part of the same deep, spe- deep state conspiracy, and have all been sent to fuck each other up. So what they're saying is basically there's an informed cabal and an uninformed cabal, and they're both fighting each other, and the conservatives, the alt-right party, the fascists, the, you know, white supremacists who are, you know, nothing is to blame on their side. It's all informed cabal versus uninformed cabal of the secret Obama Democratic Army of we have no power, like, anywhere in the government. Somehow controlling everything. It's Obama's evil army of the 12 Ebola monkeys versus like Dude, the Jerry is, Lewis faction of the deep state. And this is where I tend to start to check out because I'm like, I'm living in an episode of the freaking Twilight Zone right now. Like one of my favorite episodes of the Twilight Zone was when dude went through the wall in his bedroom and it was like like nothing and he would stick his hand in and then he'd stick his arm in and then he eventually like went through the wall and couldn't get back and that was I don't know why that terrified me but it absolutely terrified me to like walk into nothing and then not be able to find my way back but I feel like that's where this country is going it's walking into nothing and it's not going to be able to find its way back I mean we just need people to speak out within the party against this type of fascism, racism, bigotry, and we need people on the other side to speak out against it, but not incite any violence. And I'm not saying that the left is inciting violence, not at all. Those protesters Friday night were peaceful. Um, I think the Charlottesville PD really dropped the ball on that. There has to be a barrier between the protesters and the anti-protesters, and Friday night was bad, Saturday was bad. 
but we all need to just speak out for what's right and wrong, party be damned, because really what's right is right, what's wrong is wrong. And like I posted on your, your page today, you know, political platform or ideology is kind of up for debate, but humanity is not. You, we cannot debate humanity. We need to stick together when it comes to that. I really need to change our jingle from the No Politic Laughter Show because now I'm bummed out. All right, let's um, <laughs> move on to who's coming up on the show, Dee, and let's get our guest in here. He is yes. patiently waiting in the wings. Ever so patiently. So next week, we have got the amazing magician Christopher Wonder. Or, well, no, that, that sounded better when he was wonderful, doesn't it? Anyway, uh, he's next week, and then we are going to have Dave Dichter from Millions of Dead Cops on Musical Osmosis. And then on the 27th, we're actually going to have a Funny Thing About Politics episode with Ms. Heather Fink and Kettle of Fish. We're having B. Squirrel, who, I, I'm telling you, that's the coolest name for a rapper I think I've ever heard in my what life. What did you just say? B. Or, sorry, B. Squid. I don't know why. You know, because my handwriting is that terrible. That <laughs> I can tell you're a big fan. No, I mean she's really. I know what she looks like. I know what she sounds like. I just, you know, whatever. Um, then, Are you a lefty D? Because you do know today is International Left-handed is. Day. I am, and my my handwriting is just terrible today. Okay, uh, then on our last very sad but very cool musical osmosis with Odell. We are going to have Super Ugly from Unified School District is coming on, and that's going to be awesome. Um, Can I interject here real quick? Isn't this just like the universe? Fern had to go out of town to help her mom through some health issues, and she was gone from the network for a couple months, and within a week of her coming back, Odell is leaving for the exact same reason and the exact same health issue, to go travel to another state and help his parent. Pretty pretty odd timing the universe pulls on us sometimes so he'll be gone i think i'm going to shut musical osmosis down at least to the end of the year so everybody can kind of you know yeah we'll reposition and but we're also working on other things so we we probably do need the time um then we're gonna have on funny thing we're gonna have travis Harmon, um which i i'm gonna have to watch everything that that he's in and also um on kettle he's from the day. red state update oh yeah, yeah, yeah i'm gonna have to watch all of those because he's freaking hilarious um and then we're also gonna have kate hackett on um kettle of fish that day so lots and lots of cool stuff coming up we are working on um we're, we're in the baby stages of a possible video web series type thing um, and that's going to be really fun. And also I, I'm going to be updating some more videos on nerd gets fit because I am officially, it is official. I have in 98 days, I have a 10 AM audition for next season of America's Woo! Got Talent. Yes. Yes, girl. Yes. I'm yeah, excited. You're going to rock that. I'm, I'm a little nervous, a little nervous. But uh, yeah, so you got no mad light. talent. Don't be nervous. You got mad talent. Yeah, so I have my audition you just hope time. Just no quiz. You'll never beat it for ventriloquist. Oh, I know, right? I mean, how how can anybody top that? Or the the singing ventriloquist girl from this year? How can I top that? Like you can't. She's cute. She's got a little bunny, and she it sings. I mean, anyway. But all of that is um in the future, and today. Um, I don't know if we've ever had someone quite like today's guest. Multiple writings and awards and 
craziness and hilarity and all of those things all wrapped up in the nifty package that is Mr. Dylan Brody. Hi. Mr. Oh, Dylan boy. Brody, how you doing oh, today, sir? The kettle of fish. Yes, oh, welcome to Kettle of Fish. <laughs> thank you, how are you thank feeling you. on this fine Sunday with all the chaos going on? Well, first of all, uh, I'm very I'm always very excited about uh International Left Handed Day. Uh, yes, I, I bring yay. out I bring out all my compliments. One of the reasons we had you on. We know you're a big advocate of that. Yes, and uh, I, I, I still haven't uh, taken down my tr- my tree from International Eat a Donut Day. Very nice. That sounds like something you need, D. Yes. Yes. Well, not anymore. Donuts. No. But yes, it with is, the donuts. <laughs> it is a thrill and a delight to be on Kettle of Fish with you, fine folk. Wow, fine folk. All right. Well, that's a positive. Let me start with this because, um, you know, I had reached out to your agent and I was trying to book some other things and he said, hey, check out Dylan. So I immersed myself and I'm glad I did in all things Dylan Brody. And I've got to tell you, my friend, you are a modern day renaissance man. Um, just kind of a quick list here. You are a successful comedian, award-winning playwright, master storyteller, celebrated author and writer. Write, you write for a couple different, like the Daily Cause, a couple different sites, and an expert in several forms of martial arts. I mean, this list goes on and on. Yet, you're not really a household name. Average Joe on the streets not familiar with your work, unless you're like, you know, it's a joke you wrote for Jay Leno or something like that. You have some awards, but in my opinion, for the amount of time you've been doing this and for the caliber of work, I don't think you're getting as much recognition as you deserve. So let me kind of start with this. Why do you think you haven't broken through to like the mainstream? Are you spreading yourself too thin between too many different projects? Oh, good or is God. it is it like America just doesn't have the like they're just sure. too culturally sophomoric to no, understand no. what you're trying to do? No, 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 no. I, I love the sentiment that you're expressing, the idea that I should have far more success than I have, but I believe that is born of a, a mythology that I believed for a long time myself, that uh, talent and hard work alone will lead to that kind of success. Uh, no, the, the reasons that I am not far more well-known are entirely my own fault and revolve around self-sabotage that I indulged in for many, many years. Uh, I was very stoned from 1978 until 1994. Wow. That is awesome. Until 1998. Um, uh, I I was stoned morning till night, every day, all day during that time, and I was doing stand-up on the road, and I I was writing that whole time. But because I was so stoned, I wasn't really learning. I, I was uh, inoculating myself against the pain that would teach me that some things weren't working. So I was still buying into this false mythology that talent and hard work were enough to do it and not learning what the, the real requirements of an artistic career in a capitalist society are. So I was not learning to market. I was not learning to to promote. I was not learning to spread my name. I was just assuming still that eventually someone would notice what I was doing and do all that work for me. It's only in the past 10 years or so that I've really learned to start doing that, and I've learned slowly to start doing that. 
since since I got sober, but still a while after that, before I was really uh, reinventing myself as a storyteller and so on. As a result of which, you know, at the age of 54, with all this work behind me, I'm still probably four or five years away from being an overnight success. Wow. And Fern, I mean, you know how many people we have that are probably in the same, it's hard to kind of quantify, but in the same success bracket, let's say, as Dylan. Yeah. And I find it interesting when we have all these different entertainers and creative types on here, because that's what inspires, I can't speak for you, of course, but that's what inspires me to kind of on top of my day job, on top of three kids, on top of laundry and grocery shopping and life to keep moving forward. I mean, we've had a particularly, let's say, turbulent last few months with our ex-co-host leaving back last year. But that drama is still going on even yesterday Yeah, with personal issues, with your mother's health, health issues, with Dee getting ready to finish off her degree and moving up to like the board of directors in her thing that she's working on career-wise, like, it has been an insane journey. And the thing that keeps me going is guys like Dylan. There are well, yeah, creative. But I think, Dylan, you hit the nail on the head, though, and you said, you know, it's all about focusing on what works and what doesn't work. Because the one, one thing that we do here time and time and time again is you got to keep grinding it out. you got to keep grinding it out. You have to keep trying. You have to keep looking for new avenues. You have to keep... You know, you got to keep going. You can't just become complacent and just expect it to happen. And I'm sure with the digital age, that has that has tremendously helped marketability um, oh, yeah. versus it, it's changed it dramatically. Absolutely, but, and and that's important to have that energy and that drive. And I think a lot of people think it's just going to happen because it's going to happen, but you, it's a lot of work. Everybody's the band sitting in their garage, like in Josie's in a Pussycats, waiting for Mister Big to drive by and hear him and go, "Hey, you want a billion dollar record contract?" And that's not the way the real world works. I love a good Wayne's World reference. Wayne's World, Josie. Yeah, on. we're all raised on that mythology that. Uh, if you are talented and hardworking, you move to Hollywood, someone will discover you, right? And then the, the hard work is taken out of your hands, and someone else does all that, that uh, professional work, and you just have to you know, be an artist. And that's a lie. There's nobody in Hollywood waiting around to discover other people. Yeah, that sounds pretty brutal. I, I well, that's the meritocracy mindset, right? The meritocracy mindset is what we're what's encoded and embedded in us. You work hard, you go far, but it's not that way anymore because that upper echelon has that percentage has become smaller and smaller for a meritocracy to work. You actually have to put in a lot more work, say today, than you did twenty years ago or thirty years ago to make that happen because there's there's less niche and more people vying for that spot. At the risk, at the risk of being self-promotional while talking about self-promotion, this is largely what my show, Dylan Brody's Driving Hollywood, is about. There's a, a key turning point in that show. Uh, the, the whole show revolves around me going to a meeting with someone who's shown an interest in my novel. He's a, uh, an editor from a legacy publishing house in New York, and I really think things are going to change. And uh, at a certain point in the meeting, he explains that he can't buy my book because you remember when Snooky got her book deal. Uh, right. She, she, had, she already had uh, two and a half million Facebook followers, uh, Facebook fans, and half a million Twitter followers. And your following can't guarantee a return on investment. She had never set pen to paper when she got her book deal. 
So the idea of a meritocracy is now so obsolete that people are getting rewarded just for being known by name, while people who are doing the hard work and putting out actual quality artwork are being completely ignored because they are not known by name. Uh, and, and by the same token, uh, a man who is a celebrity television star uh, and an idiot at that was elected president. Yeah, not, I, how did I know you were going to segue into that? Not because he has skills, not because he has the, any of the knowledge necessary to do that job, just because he's known by name. And it's a dangerous time, which means that then the onus is upon us who have something to say, who have ideas, who are creating something from nothing and bringing it into the world, who are expressing a personal viewpoint on the way the universe works. The onus is on us to deal with reality, make the necessary concessions to reality, to get our work seen, not by somebody that we imagine will make our life easier, but by the widespread audience that really needs to hear the stuff and see the stuff and, and be engaged. And, and boy, when I take it out, when you say, is it that, that America is too stupid or too uninformed to enjoy what I do? No. As soon as they see it, as soon as I get what I'm doing out into the world, people are very excited by it. It's just that I have to work very hard to get my stuff seen by the, the people because I don't have uh, a, a celebrity platform from which to do it yet. But how is this new reality, and I do think we're living in a new reality, this new Trump world that we live in, how has it affected your ability? Well, first, let me ask you this, because I know you've talked about in interviews how you used to be more of a straight political comic, and you have pivoted away from that and gone more into being a humorist and a storyteller. With all of the insane, dangerous of political absurdity going on right now, I mean, if you're anything like me, how do you not get on stage like frothing at the mouth wanting to just talk politics for an hour straight? Well, there are two answers to that. And before I get into this, are there language restrictions on this show? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Yeah. Hell no. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, So the first answer is this. Uh, While I used to be a left-leaning, four-to-one laugh-per-minute ratio, machine-gun political comic, and I was doing this from the far left, at a time when the far right was making headway in the comedy world with the right-wing rebels. Sam Kinison, Andrew Dice Clay, Tim Allen, people who were uh, writing really good jokes that supported horrifically regressive ideas. Right? Gotcha. Um, so I had to be funnier and louder and more vulgar and more cutting-edge in order to just keep up, because it was a conservative time in, in American public, uh, American politics and, and the American zeitgeist. Um, and now there are p- wonderful people doing what I used to do and having terrific success with it, and I love that. Uh, Lee Camp and John Fugelsang, uh, and to some degree Jackie Cation uh, is, is starting to delve into that. Uh, there's a, uh, a rise in that kind of politi- political comedy over the last 10 or 15 years. It's been terrific to see. But when I'm doing my stories, they're highly personal and, uh, and very uh, literary and gotcha. erudite in tone. There is still an underpinning, almost always, of political impetus in it. I'm just finding a different way to get there that is less confrontational than it used to be. 
that said, there's a new piece that I'm working on uh, that you're going to get, I think, first broadcast on today. Ah. Um, when I was a child, my father took me on peace marches against the Vietnam War. He had a special pair of running shoes that he wore for these peace marches. And uh, it taught me that, that there is a way that individuals can take action in the world and make their voices heard. And then I went away to prep school, and Ronald Reagan was elected in 1980, and I called my dad from boarding school, and I said, Dad, people are cheering this guy. I don't understand. Do they not know that this man was president of SAG, the Screen Actors Guild, during the McCarthy hearings and said to, the, the, to McCarthy, oh, you want a list of communists in the Screen Actors Guild? Let me get a pen. Do they not realize who they're, wow. they're electing? Uh, do they not know that this guy is an avuncular idiot? And my father said, uh, don't worry, Dylan, it's okay, relax. There is a pendulaic nature to this thing. We pushed Nixon out of power. The right was humiliated. We had the office for four years. Now they want the comfort of a, a nostalgic world. Don't worry, we'll get it back. And eight years later, I was out here in L.A. I had begun my career in earnest as a stand-up comic when George Bush, the first, was elected president. And I called my father and I said, do people not realize he was the head of the CIA? Do people not realize that this man is the, the guy who was behind Iran-Contra? And my father said, Dylan, it's okay. Coined the phrase, no, New World Order, by the way. That's right. Uh, we'll get it back. There's a pendulate nature to these things. It's, don't worry. And then we elected Clinton. And I really thought everything was going to be fine for a minute, and then I realized that he is as capitalist, was and is as capitalist as any of the right wing, that we had moved so far to the right that what seemed to be a democratic uh, victory was little more than a slight shift toward the center. Um, and yes, socially there were some changes being made, but we were still bombing and and and... and maintaining no-fly zones in the Middle East. And I said, Dad, what's going on? And he said, this is how the pendulum works. Don't worry. He'll have eight years. We'll move things back over to the left. And they moved a little bit, but not far enough. And then we elected the second George. And I was insane. And I was on the phone to my dad saying, Dad, it's, it's, do they not realize that this guy is, is, is who we thought Dan Quayle was? And he said, don't worry. Pendulaic nature. Relax. Breathe. Everything's fine. We elected Obama. And boy, I was sure now things were going to change. And then I realized, okay, he's a centrist. He's a, uh, ultimately a pragmatic politician. And there's symbolic meaning, but things are not changing as fast as, as I wanted them to. And then we elected Trump. And I called my dad on election night when, you know, I was, I had planned to spend election night celebrating like there was a cure for AIDS and I owned the patent. And Instead, I spent election night disguising the door to my attic as a bookcase. And I, uh, I called my dad, and I said, Dad, I need your wisdom, I need your solace, I need the comfort of your wise words. And he said, Dylan, we're fucked. Wow. And, yeah. Um, and I spiraled, you know, my, my spiraled, my mood just, just spiraled downward like, 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 like Larry Flint at the Guggenheim. And... So I began 
to put together a new four-to-one laugh-per-minute ratio set. Um, and uh, I had started on Inauguration Day. I was really just writing my... When, when Kelly Conway showed up in that ridiculous Flag Day cosplay outfit, and then uh, and I made fun of that, and then people said, oh, you're sexist to attack her on her appearance, which I think is stupid, because I also attack the president on his appearance. I, first of all, if you, are, if you are 80 pounds overweight, you don't solve it by wearing a suit that's two sizes too big. That just makes you look like a disgruntled adjunct professor at a community college. And by the way, I wear my vest with the bottom button undone because Henry VII was uh, self-conscious about his weight, so now I'm afraid everyone is going to have to start wearing their ties down to their scrota because our president has, has phallic insecurity. He appointed Betsy DeVos to the, the education department, uh, a, a woman who would better damn well hope that she's judged on, on growth, not on performance, a, a distinction that she really ought to be aware of being the head of the education department, a woman who believes that we can uh, stop abortion if we just eliminate sex ed from from the curriculum it's like try, trying to eliminate graffiti by by refusing to teach spelling to children uh, rex tillerson is now the secretary of state rex tillerson former head of exxon if you liked what they did with the valdez wait till you see how they steer this ship of state so i started writing one after another these jokes and uh, my dad called me uh within days of the inauguration, and he said, Dylan, I know I didn't give you what you wanted on uh, on the night of the election. I know you wanted comfort from me, and I couldn't provide it, and I know things look very dark, and these do not look like good times in the United States, but I wanted to let you know I went out this morning. I bought a new pair of running shoes. Nice. Well, I stand wow. corrected then. It sounds like you, <laughs> that, that the current political climate is kind of making you pivot oh, back. Oh, yeah, I... I want to write an entire 40-minute set to fit into that 4-to-1 laugh-per-minute ratio segment of that story so that I can open with the top half of it, uh, include uh, a sequence on the right-wing rebels when I started doing stand-up, then do all, you know, like 38 and a half minutes of 4-to-1 laugh-per-minute jokes attacking the current administration. Nice. And then close with that, and I'll be able to be doing old-fashioned machine-gun political comedy again within the format that I've created for myself that gives it the, the long arc uh, that I so enjoy now. I think the long arc that I'm working with as a storyteller uh, is a relief to people. I think people are exhausted now by the constant bombardment of sound bites and 15-second jokes. But aren't we conditioned to have that 140-character tweet or soundbite or bumper sticker mentality? Can we even... Conditioning, conditioning can be changed. And that's where I talk about making concessions and at the same time doing what we need to do to change the world. I, a lot of my work now, and this is going to get very highfalutin for a minute, uh, without saying it while I'm on stage, without talking about it excessively when I'm doing the actual work, as opposed to talking about the actual work or doing my own journal work, a lot of what I do now is about resetting epigenetic triggers because we have been so conditioned that we are unaware of how conditioned we are. I think, it's, I think that the reason... Uh, I have a piece called Democracy 101 that talks about yes. the way in which our, our electoral system has become a mentalist's trick. Right. That, uh, and I think we've become so conditioned... The reason 
there has been such the secret reason there's been so much push towards standardized multiple choice testing is not to get accountability from teachers, which is absurd, but rather to indoctrinate children as early as possible into choosing from the options offered and not seeing that there is a wider range of options. Yes. Well, we saw that during the election with this term, quote, unquote, binary choice. And we heard that term everywhere. And I would scream at the television when they would go, well, really, all you could do is either vote for Hillary or vote for Trump. And they, they acted as if... Um, third parties didn't even exist. Like they wouldn't even acknowledge them on MSNBC, on CNN, on anything. They just acted like they didn't even exist. It was crazy. That's right, and that and that is built into representative democracy as we practice it in the U.S. and always has been. Um, and it's time for things to change, and it's time for things Agreed. to change dramatically. And they don't change dramatically unless we're willing to say when we notice, oh, this is what we're conditioned to. We notice that and think, okay, how can I, A, change that conditioning, and B, make only the absolutely necessary concessions to that conditioning to tee up the ball so that I can make those changes? Well, it's each person, and let me interject in here real quick, Dylan, um, because I have a great story. Fern has your show. And us. Well, it's really the guest show and the fan show. I'm just the asshole with the mic. But um, it's really Fern's story, and I was so proud when I heard this. During the election, Fern, you got a call from a telemarketer, and it, you were kind of like they were trying to box you in the exact same way, right? Oh, yeah. I got, I got a random call from a poll survey, telemarketer, you know, whatever you call them. And they basically were just like, if you had to vote today, would you vote for Donald Trump and Hillary or Hillary Clinton? And I just paused for a minute, and I said, okay, I'm waiting for you to finish. You know, and she's like, well, I, that's the question. And I was like, well, you do understand that there are two other candidates. Like, you do understand that Gary Johnson and Jill Stein are also running. Like, that this is not just a Republican-Democrat thing. There are more than two parties. And I said, you know, this is exactly what's wrong with this country. You and are exactly what's are wrong with this country. I'm sorry? And that write-ins are allowed. And write-ins are allowed. You know, I voted for John Don't Kasich the in the primary. Party. Let's not exclude the pirate party. <laughs> the pirate party, yes. You know, I voted for Kasich in the primary. I was one of the 10% in Virginia that did so. Um, I voted for Johnson in the general election. No trouble admitting that. I know there's been a lot of flack about third-party voters, but I couldn't in good conscience vote for Hillary. I couldn't in good conscience vote for um, for sure, and I wanted to see a third party come through uh, more strongly since it's been like in the 90s when uh, was it Ross Perot that garnered 19% of the vote? You know, I'd like to see third parties come through. So that's why I voted third party, not because I believe that Johnson was the best guy for the job. Honestly, I think Kasich was the best guy for the job, but I did believe in a third party breakup of this, Sanders, this Sanders, duopoly. Sanders. Sorry, I had and then when you go back to this being ingrained in you, Nick and I had a conversation not too long ago, uh, maybe yesterday or today. I mean, it all kind of 
we talk to each other a lot, so it kind of blurs together. But the, the fact that people cannot speak to each other, that people have to be either right or wrong, is ingrained in us at a very early age. You either answer on the, the test correct or you don't. You either follow the rules or you don't. And we are conditioned at a very young age to either be right or wrong. And I like to say I would rather be informed than right. I have changed my position and my opinion on a few things based on research, information, understanding from the other side, considering another perspective and saying, you know, you know, I, I got to admit, I have to let my logical brain override my emotions and my ideology that was ingrained in me as a child. I had to think for myself, and I think more people need to do that and push away this duopoly and think for themselves and what closely fits their ideology, whether it's independents or libertarians or a Green Party or, hey, maybe even the Pirate Party. If that's you, go for it, pal. As long as we can have a good conversation and bring ideas to the table, intellectual thought, I will have a conversation with anybody, anybody well, at all. Well, Dylan really digs into this in your stay on, you know, on stage. I mean, not say stage show on stage when you talk about your youth and how you ask questions, and you were constantly ending up right back in a principal's office, right? Right. Uh, yeah. Um, and uh, th- this is exactly the kind of thinking that, first of all, delights me, and. More importantly, uh, more importantly, that's a little pompous, uh, uh, but, but to this conversation uh, is what I'm going for with the long-form storytelling. I am, tr- I, I am trying to, at an unconscious level, remind an audience, at least some members, remind as many people as I can that they are capable of sustaining a long, complex thought, that they are capable of putting a number of ideas together to, to uh, sort of triangulate uh, uh, a position for themselves that may not be one they knew they were interested in staking out. And as long as we are conditioned to think in terms of sound bites and easy answers and sloganeering. I mean, the, the anti-intellectualism goes back to the Reagan era. Uh, and before that, and frankly, to the, the, the founding of the country, it goes back. But the current era of anti-intellectualism goes back to the Reagan era. Absolutely. It goes, to, it goes back to Nancy Reagan trying to solve a nationwide drug problem with the slogan, just say no, which is like trying to cure clinical depression with just cheer up. Which has kind of been co-opted by Trump's new opioid slogan of, oh, just stop doing drugs. Yeah. Just tell them to stop doing drugs. How come no one ever thought of that before? If, if, uh, If we are all trained to deride complex thought, to ridicule intellect, and to worship the pithy phrase, then we are doomed. And I consider it my job. And occasionally I throw in a fast joke to get a laugh. I do everything I can to keep the audience engaged and following. But by the end of any one of my stories, by the end of any one of my shows, I am doing so many callbacks to things that came earlier. I am revisiting so many turns of phrase and so many uh, images that the audience is constantly being 
re-triggered to re-examine a thought from an hour ago, now informed by what they've heard in the interim. And it is my hope that that kind of art, and I say all the time entertainment is the word people use when they don't want to take responsibility for what they say through their art. So through that kind of art, I am entertaining for however long it is, an hour, 90 minutes, whatever. And by the end, am reigniting the childlike spirit of creativity and thought that they used to have on the way to and from school, but that was taught out of them while they sat in that classroom. Well, so do you consider yourself, because you have this mission, I just heard you use the word hope like three times in that explanation, do you consider yourself hopeful and optimistic? Are you are you waiting for that call from your dad to say, yes, we can overcome this, there's going to be a shift or has to be a shift? When he said he was buying new new running shoes. Right, but I mean, I'm new- saying perpetually, are you always like, I'm waiting for that call from America, metaphorically, for America to say, we just bought new running shoes, Dylan, it's going to be okay. Or are you uh, pessimistic? No, I am making that call to America. I am not passive in this. Do you think we're picking up? If if two people in an audience of 5,000 pick up, then I've done something. Nice. Wow. Fern, that's what you always tell me. That's exactly, exactly what I say. You know, if, if, if I spend my whole life, you know, when I get up in the morning, I feel the weight of the world. I feel the pressure. I feel the negativity. I feel... I feel the anger, and I make it my mission and my job to, A, try to help those that I care about and make sure that those that I care about are taken care of, and B, try to put some positivity in the world to try to combat this, to try to push against this weight of darkness that I feel on a daily basis. And I do that because I think that's the only way to fight. It's a terminal fight. I know that. But if in my lifetime I only affect one, two, three people, and they only affect one, two, three people, then I feel like that's a positive thing. Like the Johnson Shampoo commercial, and I told two friends, and they told two friends. I just reread Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, and I hadn't read it since high school. Um, and in high school, I wasn't prepared to understand it yet. I didn't realize how much I had missed in it and how important a book it is. And I was reading, the, you know, there's the two segments in the book. There's the first segment that's all of his experiences in the death camps in Germany, where he went to four different death camps and wound up surviving. And then the second segment uh, is all about uh, uh, logotherapy and his approach to... to the psychiatric profession. And I had forgotten the whole segment on logotherapy and that that very idea has almost entirely been expunged from American psychiatric care. Um, I'm medicated against depression. It has saved my life. I'm convinced that the time I spent stoned was self-medicating against depression until it stopped working and I needed to find something else. Um, but uh, and for 10 years, I, martial arts was enough. And then the depression came back, and I needed to find some better way. But what, what Viktor Frankl talks about is that unlike uh, Freudian psychotherapy or Jungian psychotherapy that goes back through the past, or cognitive psychotherapy, which is what all the uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, which is what all the insurance companies want to work with now, 
because it sets a limit, right? In 10 sessions, we will have you logically examining this neurosis, and then you'll be better, and then we can stop paying for your sessions. Logotherapy deals with the idea that your life has meaning, and as long as you are looking forward, not backward, as long as you are refocusing your energies on how even your suffering has value and meaning, then you can have a reason to continue and a reason to continue changing and shaping your world and your life and your experience. And it is beautiful. That idea is beautiful. And the concept of looking forward, the concept of looking at anything other than how do I survive until next week and pay my bills has been stamped out of us as a society. And then we wonder why depression is rampant. Yep, yes. which leads, of course, to opioid addiction, which leads um, a lot leads, to all of the fear and anger that you're seeing rage, on the right. It leads to yep. blame. It yep. leads to, um, to choosing, uh, uh, choosing sides and deciding on who is going to be able to save you. It leads to passivity. You nailed it. it I agree. It leads to hopelessness, and it leads to a sense of powerlessness. All right, let me do this. I got to kind of gain control here because we're coming up on the 45 minute mark and there's a couple points I want to hit. We're definitely, we're definitely going to have you. We have a political show. I want to get you on our political show because then we can really dig in if you want to come on that, Dylan. Happy to do it. Cool. I'm going to shift gears here then because you've mentioned your dad several times and totally get out of the political realm. You know, you, you listen to a lot of comedians, you listen to a lot of performers. And so many of them talk, especially on stage, about their relationships with their parents, turbulent childhoods, bad relationships with their parents, men especially with their fathers. With you, it sounds the opposite. It sounds like you have a great relationship with your parents, particularly your father. Has it always been that way? My father and I have always been very close. Uh, He has said that – we're also very similar. He said that uh, until I was born, he had no mannerisms, and then he started imitating mine. Wow. <laughs> um, uh, we p- people have seen me on TV when I when I used to be a comic. I, I did some stuff on TV, and he got a call from somebody overseas who said, "I just saw your son on TV," uh, and he said, "How did you know it was my son?" He said, "Because he looks exactly like you." Um, <laughs> we're we're very close. We have been for a long time. We think a lot alike. He taught me a lot of what I know about about comedy and humor and art. Um, we also have our differences and our arguments. My my relationship with my mother is much more strained, um, and I wrote a play. My award-winning play was really an attack on her, uh, for which I still feel some guilt now, uh, since I've grown up a little bit since then. But um, I have reassigned her on stage. I have turned her into Gracie Allen, so that I have a foil that I can work against. Gotcha. Uh, when I'm telling stories about my mother, um, and the recognition that, that people have when they see that relationship is remarkable because it's a, a highly fictionalized version of my relationship with my mother. Um, but no, my father and I get along very, very well, um, and when we argue, we do so fairly decently. Um, he, he, the, the last time he scolded me was when there was a, we were having a conversation and he finished talking and I had finished talking. So I checked my phone and that enraged him. 
Uh, but it just turned out that he needed to go outside for a cigarette. Uh, well, look, I want to talk about the book. I want to hit one more point. I'll be remiss if I don't talk about this. I'm 46 years old, so I'm kind of right behind you age-wise. Um, I grew up in D.C., in the D.C. punk scene. I played in punk bands. I am an active lover of the DIY, you know, the do-it-yourself culture, political discourse. Because, you know, Washington, D.C., that was a politically charged environment I grew up in. And of spoken word. And, I mean, man, I've got, like... 1520 Henry Rollins spoken word CDs and DVDs. And when I look at your work, I feel like there's a lot of that encoded on like the DNA of your work. Did you were did, did you were like involved at all in the punk scene? Did you listen to punk rock? Because I feel like there's some of that on you. I am not a big punk fan. Um, I certainly heard punk. Um, I was already late high school, early college, when the punk scene really took off. Um, uh, I'm aware of Henry Rollins, and I like some of his work. Lou Reed had an influence on me. Right. Um, And Lou Reed is really pre-punk. What you're hearing that you imagine is punk is a, a, a ruthless devotion to my own emotional life, which has the same roots that punk has. Um, I, do, you, do you know the Mountain Goats? I heard you talk about it on stage, but now I'm, I haven't looked at Check out the up. Mountain Goats. I refer to them as post-grunge humanist folk rock. He's also post-punk. Um, and uh, there's a, a, a lyric sensibility... Uh, a musicality to my language that may remind you of punk because that's the music and the lyricality that you love. Um, I think of myself as far more connected to Bruce Springsteen and Lou Reed and John Darnielle than I do to the punk scene. Uh, but I certainly don't object to being seen in that same sort of life. Yeah, I don't think you realize how much punk attitude that your work has. And growing up in that scene, because that scene, that culture was always more about attitude than actual music. Because that spectrum of music goes from rockabilly to ska. I mean, there's even right. some rap bands now that are on punk labels. And it's attitude. It's the do-it-yourself attitude. It's the political discourse. It's the search for knowledge and a search to better and enlighten yourself. And, of course, it's very liberal. It's to the left. And I just feel like that if you kind of heard that, you would make a connection with it, because I definitely see the connection between you and the punk culture. Oh, I love to hear that. Uh, Yeah, I'll have to put you together a playlist. But, I mean, yeah, I definitely see that in you. All right, let me hit this last thing, because we got to get out of here, and I want to talk about your book, so let's talk about the Modern Depression Guide. And I know this book is tongue-in-cheek satirical, but as reading it, there were some things in it that are actually pretty fucking depressing, like mass <laughs> consumerism and big pharma. Kind of get, <laughs> like, yeah, like sum this up for me, because I know it's satirical and there's still going to be people that, even though it's satire, it's going to piss them off. Who, what, what was the target audience with this? And did you get any backlash? Do you have any kind of fear of somebody taking it literally and being like, hey, this guy's onto something. Maybe I just need to like throw the pills in the toilet and be depressed all the time. Um, I, yeah, I worry about that. I do worry about that. I, I wrote this book uh, at the end of my last Great Depression, um, right before I started studying martial arts, right before I quit smoking pot. Um, 
Uh, yeah, sorry, I had like 14 thoughts right there that I, <laughs> I, I'm going to need to sort through in my own journal work later. Um, and I recently had <coughs> a, a woman, it's out now for the first time in print. It was an e-book for a long time before it came out in print. Um, and uh, I had a woman uh, attack me on Facebook because how dare I be funny about depression? It's a very serious topic. Um, and you're very careful in the one about suicide to say, contemplate it, revel in it, but don't do it. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, there is stuff in the medication that I say about not taking medication that worries me now because I have since come to be medicated and it saved my life. Um, the idea of the book uh, came out of my deepest depression. Um, and I was convinced that if I could just explore it through the lens of humor, if I could put my misery under laughing glass, I'd be able to present it, and then I'd be free of it. And it turns out it's chemical. It's not going to be dispelled <laughs> yeah. that easily. I so there's the no ca- grand catharsis in it, then, is what you're saying. Yeah. Um, there was at the time, but it didn't last. Right. Um, and I believe that there is no topic about which one cannot be funny. I think as soon as we start saying that can't be joked about, we have uh, given up one of our greatest powers of resilience. Um, in fact, my new story, my story in the most recent issue of American Bystander, Memories of Funny Thing, is about exactly that idea that humor is how we deal with the most difficult stuff. Yeah. That said, that book has led me to a screenplay of the same title, Modern Depression Guidebook, that I really want to get to Jim Carrey, that is about uh, a self-help guru, like a, a Tony Robbins type, who realizes that he's out talking about how you, know, you can change your life, you can make everything great, at the same time that he's getting a divorce and his life is falling apart and his son won't talk to him. Oh, I love and that. Really abruptly begins telling the truth on stage. He just sort of has a breakdown and start and delivers what turns into the modern depression guidebook, and makes this sudden shift from being a self-help uh, figure to being a satirist about the self-help industry. And by the end of the movie, uh, he's got a new agent that he's in love with. He's, his divorce is over. He's got a new house. He's reconciled with his son because he started telling the truth, and he's no longer a bullshit artist. And he's still booked for all these shows about the Modern Depression Guidebook. So he's feeling good, so he has to try to commit suicide because he's no longer depressed. And he is rescued from that suicide attempt and realizes that life is a constant process of reinvention, that you're not the same person you were yesterday. And that sometimes you'll be able to help people and sometimes you'll barely be able to help yourself but you must always be true to what you are experiencing now. And I realized only after writing the screenplay that I had written my journey, as a, first as a comic and then reinventing as a storyteller, and my journey from someone who relied on his depression to somebody who was relying on martial arts, to someone who was relying on medication, uh, that I believe life is a constant process of reinvention. So while I have fears... On my worst day, when I'm depressed, I have fears that somebody will take my satire literally and abandon their medication and harm themselves because I said something funny once. Um, 
I think the likelihood is that over time, more people will benefit from the laughter that book provides about their depression and allow people the ability to see it from a new angle than could possibly uh, be somehow damaged by it. And I hope that's true. And if not, it's at least the thing that I will say when I have to defend myself against a lawsuit. <laughs> well, America is so uh, – let me say just a set of America is so nihilistic now, and I'll throw this over to Fern. And we know people in particular <laughs> – not that she's nihilistic. Thanks, I'm, I'm referring to <laughs> people we used to work with and stuff. Like, some people are so nihilistic, and I know you didn't get a chance to read the book, Fern, but there's a chapter on overreaction, like, overreact to everything, and a self-loathing, and I, like, I'm reading through this, and I'm like, you know, if I'm, if I'm a certain person of a certain personality, I would read this and actually be like, wow, he gets me, Dylan really, really gets me, (laughs) and it would be seen almost as a self-help book, like, yeah, this guy gets me, I want to just waddle and and just, like, revel in my depression and misery, and that's how far we've come of just kind of being narcissistic and nihilistic, right, Fern? Well, yeah, but there's always two options, right? There's always the option to look in the mirror or not. And somebody reading that might say, yep, that's who I am, and yep, that's how I'm going to be, and yep, fuck the world. And there's other people who look at it and go, wow, oh, my God, I recognize these behaviors. Wow, I'm really doing this. Wow, I need to change. Like, this is why my life is miserable. It's not because of this guy over here or this girl over there or because of my boss or because of my kids. It's really all about me, and I need to start changing my perspective, my perception. And most people don't have that type of introspection to be able to do that. I just got out of a relationship with somebody who could not do that. Um, He could do it for a day or two when I said, hey, look, check it out. Like, this is self-destructive behavior. You're really taking a lot of aggressions, and I'm your target, and, like, I'm supposed to be your biggest cheerleader. Like, I'm here for you. I'm supporting you. I'm doing what I can to help you and trying to get to the root of the weed, not just snatching the dandelion off the top, but really go underneath, deep down in the dirt, and figure out where it comes from so that we can pull it out and really start to change the behavior. But that takes the self being able to look in the mirror and being able to see what they see and say, I'm the only person that can change it. And a lot of people don't have that, and a lot of America doesn't have that because it's easier for somebody else to be wrong and to blame somebody else than for you to be wrong. And that goes full circle back into the the integration of you're right or you're wrong, and the the uh, conditioning as children. And people don't want to be wrong. They want but to be right. But let me just kind of drift back into politics to kind of put a nice little cap on this, a bow on this. So we're in a place now where you had these people who were self-victimizing, and you know how much I get on and talk about how the right is constantly self-victimizing. And I just wrote an article, actually, and I was like, you know, if this self-victimization, if this – so-called oppression was tedious over you know under obama it's downright absurd now and i think what happened is obama's on the or trump's on the scene now and trump's kind of like hey unemployment went from 40 percent to four percent and and jobs are skyrocketing and there's jobs aplenty and everything's great and now it's like but i've kind of been a fuck up for the last eight years and been able to say obama 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 now, this is putting undue stress on me to say, well, I don't have any more excuses. There's jobs everywhere, and the uh, stock market's great, and ISIS isn't going to fucking blow me up at the county fair, and I'm not going to get a bowl at Denny's. 
And now you're seeing like the NRA come out and because gun, you know, owner, not ownership, but gun sales are plummeting. Now they're kind of selling this narrative. It's the liberals that are going to get you. Middle-aged women in pink pussy hats are going to like bang down your door and kill your family. And it's like they're always, and I'll pass it over to Dylan. Maybe he has the same observation. It's like they're always looking for the next person that's victimizing them. So they don't have to take any responsibility for their bad behavior. Well, the, the live in fear thing uh, is not the same as the victimization. Um, the live in fear, you know, oh my God, I'm going to get a bowl of Denny's. Oh my God, uh, uh, the, the, the black man who lives in the ghetto is going to come out to the suburbs and break down my door, or the police who want to take away my guns are going to come and break down my door. Um, whichever, whichever fear is being fostered at a given time is all based in consumerism. Um, it, uh, uh, this comes up over and over again, and I haven't yet written a story that incorporates it. I will eventually. Um, the, 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 the news, the, the television news, used to be a separate division of every channel uh, that was not dependent on advertising yep. for its budget. Uh, and that was important. Fairness now Doctrine is, drove a, stra- uh, a stake through that hard. Now, exactly. Now it is dependent on advertising, and a lot of the advertisers are anti-anxiety medications. So it, the more anxiety, the, what pretends to be a source of pure information can provide, the more money they make from their, uh, the, the purchasers of their advertising, their financial support. So if we, as, as instinctive animals, as humans, if we see a bear and there is a fuzzy cute bunny somewhere, we will focus on the bear because the bear can kill us, right? right? So uh, what all of television news is constantly doing is saying, look at the bear. There are bears everywhere. And now a word from Paxil. Look at gotcha. the bear. Be frightened. There's, there are mm. things that can kill you over which you have no, correct, no, no control. And now a word from Prozac. Mm-hmm. So that everybody is constantly being made to feel anxious so that they will purchase the things that are being sold. The NRA also feeds on that. We, we need to sell guns. We are, we are in the pocket of... Uh, uh, the the weapons manufacturers. So our goal is not to protect rights; it is to sell guns. So we must constantly gin up this fear that somebody is coming to take away your guns, so that you will need to have more guns to protect your guns from the people who are coming to take them. Isn't that the truth? Um, <laughs> and and that's an absurd way to live, but it keeps people from focusing on the future and what they can do to change the world. And it's a sad state of affairs, though, right? I mean, I'm constantly amazed, just like we were talking about in the start of the show, of just the lack of accountability. And anytime someone does something bad on the left, like Kathy Griffin, I see the left come out and the majority of people are like, yeah, this isn't cool. But when somebody does something bad on the right, it's kind of like, take that, liberals. We'll burn down the whole country if we have to to get to you. Or it's cloaked in if it's really heinous. Oh, they're just a crisis actor. Oh, they're just a deep state, state operative. And they won't take any accountability when their side is doing something horrendous. Well, yeah, I, you know, there's, there's a certain amount of team playership that has been encouraged for a long, long time that has nothing to do with the truth or the facts. Um, 
and I, I hate, I, I see it less on the left than I see it on the right, but because it has been so successful on the right, uh, I have seen people on the left starting to adopt it as well. Yeah. Um, uh, and that pains me. Uh, but I cannot, I can't take responsibility for what Bill Maher does that I disagree with. Gotcha. All I can take responsibility for is what I do with my time on the planet. And, uh, and I will speak my truth. And when I recognize that I've gotten something wrong, I will change it. Um, I'll give you an example. I have a a joke that I used to have in my act that I loved that sometimes was an applause break joke. Um, It was, uh, I went to a Denny's restaurant in Texas, two in the morning, waitress had gone, or a manager had gone home for the night. Waitress came over to my table breastfeeding an infant. What a classy establishment. Gotcha. She said, can I get y'all anything? I said, yeah. I'd like to see a children's menu. (laughs) Now, I loved this joke, <laughs> and sometimes if I paused long enough, someone would chime in with, I'll have what he's having, and then mine would be better, and then I could lean into the microphone and say, mine will always be funnier than yours, and I loved everything about this joke, and then I realized it was inherently sexist. There is a woman, a, probably a single mother, raising a child, breastfeeding, and I am seeing her as an object of my pleasure. So I changed the joke to what I think is a better joke, although it is less funny. And the new joke is about my sister. My sister is gay. I love her like a brother. And uh, she is the single mother of a beautiful daughter who was deliberately conceived in a loving act between my sister and a turkey baster. Uh, Just one of the reasons I will not have Thanksgiving dinner at my sister's place. And my sister was briefly on government assistance, not because she is a slacker or because she's lazy, but because she was fired from her job bartending uh, when they caught her in the back room breastfeeding her infant on a break. Because we live in a bizarre society where it's less uh, acceptable to use breasts to feed children than it is to use breasts to sell beer. Um, Yeah, and you know what? I'm glad you brought that joke up because it reminded me of my friend Dana who has very long dreadlocks, and he's a little bit effeminate-looking, I guess, and he would go on threads and talk politics, and when he would do it, some of the more trollish people would come out and be like, shut up, I'll fucking rape you, I'll rape you, and then he would say, hey, I'm a dude, and they'd go, oh, sorry, man, sorry. Like, I'll rape you isn't over the line. They would rather be known as a rapist than gay. Like, oh, no, I'm not going to rape a dude. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm not gay. But, you know, I'll rape a woman. Like, that is a crazy standard in my point. Like, in my um, opinion. Um, And, yes, I agree with you. 100%. But that's very far away from the point that I was making. Um, We are constantly sending signals and messages through what jokes we make and what we say and what we do. And when we realize that the signal we're sending is wrong, we have the opportunity to correct it. Mm-hmm. And far too many people instead do what the news insists on calling doubling down. They just become more entrenched and more more yes. insistent that they meant to say what they said. And that's problematic. We have to be willing to grow willing to change. 
you know, one of the things that I love about the martial arts uh, is that you're never done. There are tests, and you, you earn a new belt, and you earn a new degree, and then you earn a new degree, and then you study more, and you earn a new degree, and you learn more, and you earn a new degree, and you're never done. We are very big in the U.S. on the idea that you finish high school, and then you're done, or you finish college, and then you're done, or you get your Ph.D., and then you're done. And at that point, you have learned, and now uh, you stop learning and start teaching or doing or having a real life as though the process of learning is not inherently part of real life. Mm. And we never learn the we never lose the capacity to learn. And if we see the learning of school as just an initiation into a lifelong process, then the whole way that we look at this thing can be altered. And we can look at it all as an opportunity for growth and continued growth. And we all become both teacher and student. Nice. And students take on a new kind of power and, uh, in their own process early on. And teachers and non-teachers take on a new capacity to absorb new information and alter themselves as they move through their existence on the planet. It's so brief. We are all living under the crushing urgency of mortality. We Couldn't really, agree more. We really, we must use the time to grow as far as we can so as to be able to leave behind a greater opportunity for growth in the next generation. Wow. I think that's a pretty profound place that we've gone way over to end. <laughs> Dylan, I want to thank you so much for calling in today. Can you please tell everybody where they can find you on the interwebs? Find me at uh, DylanBrody.com. I'm going to be redesigning that site within the next few months. But DylanBrody.com is my website. Uh, I am the Dylan Brody at Facebook. It is my fan site. Please go there and like that page. You'll see all the same stuff that I put on my friend page, I promise you. Uh, but it affects my career if I have more likes on my fan page at the Dylan Brody at Facebook. And follow me at Dylan Brody on the Twitters. That sounds good. Fern, I know you've been kind of uh, messaging in here. You learned a lot today, huh? I could feel it. Oh, you, no, it, it's always like I think uh, your comedy is uh, brilliant and very intellectual, but you are there's a difference between a storyteller and like a comedian. Like you are brilliantly funny. But, you know, there's lots of people out there telling dick jokes, but you do take that literary aspect and put it into your work. And the body of work that I have, have looked at is just incredible, the way that you do storytell. And I do want to briefly mention, I know this hasn't been touched on, but I do want to briefly mention your YouTube series, Husband and Life. I think that in short form, this gives people a really good view of your ability to take, you know, a minute-ish clips and really get a sense of your humor. And, you, I mean, you've done something amazing with this. You've taken okay. a minute, and you have made it funny, and you have made it literary, and you have, like, really shown people a piece of you in a very short amount of time that's very broad. And I think that's highly intelligent. I think it's uh, smart marketability as well. <laughs> so I want to recognize that. And I was really impressed with that series, just to let you know. So um, on the Dylan Brody YouTube page, folks, definitely check that out, as well as all the other amazing stuff that Dylan Brody has to offer. 
thank you so much, guys. It was a, a really good time talking to you guys. Right yeah. on. Thank you, Dylan. All right, Dee, we've got a special song to go out on today. Dylan Brody, this one's for you. Oh, those golden grams, oh, those golden grams, 